So, as uh, you know, we're going through a bit of, bit of an earthquake here, really. Um, me and Pat are certainly feeling the rumblings of an earthquake that's just building up, and, uh, and it's the same, really, for all of us, for the family here at St. Luke's. Friday night party that you gave us was unbelievable. I mean, more than I could have expected, and I had quite high expectations. So, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, thank you. We are so grateful for everything, for the gifts that people brought to that night in so many ways, really. I mean, the amazing performances that, you know, yet again showcase the incredible talent that is St. Luke's, um, the hosting of the evening, the incredible array of food, the practical arrangements and organisation, the cakes that are still here for us today, I think, some of them, uh, the wedding cake that uh, we were eating some of yesterday, eating part of me, actually. It was my turn to be eaten off the cake. Uh, <laughs> feet first. The presence, the presence of so, so many fabulous people who are in our hearts forever. The love that just filled this room. I can't tell you how grateful we are to everyone. It was a party, of course, I didn't want. I mean, not that I didn't want it, but it was a party I didn't want, you understand. I haven't chosen to retire in about three weeks' time. It's something that is required. What, uh, you know, I can only see as a pretty daft rule in this day and age, but hey, there it is. And in the end, you know, all things must pass. Everything changes, which is what... Uh, was alluded to in the children's talk and what I want to say something about this morning because it's not just an issue that for us, it's not just an issue that we as a couple are dealing with. Every one of us must accede to change all the time. Uh, I mean, you don't have to like it, so you, know, you can let yourself off with that. There are a lot of changes that we don't like, but um, we have to process them. We have to live with them. Death. Of course, the loss of a loved one is the ultimate change that at some point we all have to negotiate. Uh, and that's something which I have had the enormous privilege of helping people with in these 18 years at St. Luke's. Uh, well, we counted up, it was around about a thousand funerals, which is quite a lot, isn't it? And all the times of being with people in my involvement <coughs> with... Uh, with people who are bereaved. And what I've observed again and again is that it isn't simply the loss that we have to process. That's kind of like an amputation, not that I know very much about that personally, but I do know that losing someone is like losing part of you, you know, uh, that you wake up with every single morning and take for granted it's there your hand just reaches for the toothpaste or the coffee machine or whatever it is, and you just take that for granted. Your legs carry you there. And that's how it is with people. We're like that. With People are like that in our lives. They're just part of the furniture, the landscape of our lives. <clears throat> and to lose them is like an amputation, having to learn to live all over again. And it'll never be the same, you know. It'll never be the same. You, you can't possibly go back to how it was before. You learn to get over it, to process it, to live with it, to move forward, but you never get over it because 
It's something that is part of you that isn't there anymore. And what I've observed again and again, as I say, is it's not simply that. It's not simply the loss that we have to process. But frequently, it's also a massive sense of shock. Shock. It's a quite separate thing to bereavement. And very often when I'm dealing with people in my line of work, I see both these things going on. And sometimes the shock isn't quite so much because the person has been dying for a long time and you get used to it, but uh, it's still a shock. But for other, other people, oh my God, it's just everything. It's massive, the shock. It's the ultimate change that we have to negotiate. And um, <clears throat> naturally... It's more pronounced when a death does come out of the blue, like that of the 18-year-old in this parish whose funeral I took some years ago. She had an eating disorder which made her mum anxious when she said that she wanted to go abroad on a holiday with her friends. But things seemed to be under control. The, the disorder was, was managed, so why not? Well, for whatever reason, uh, the young woman didn't end up eating properly in a strange country and strange food and so on. She became dehydrated um, and she was hospitalized. And by the time her mum reached her, she'd gone. And what a bloody shock is that? I knew the young woman, actually, from other involvements that I'd already had with the family. A very beautiful young woman. The utter shock, quite apart from the loss, almost destroyed the mother, too. And it's not just the shock of bereavement that I've witnessed in people over these 18 years at St Luke's. There was the young woman who came here just to one Sunday morning, actually, and asked me at the end if she could... She actually said, would I be allowed to speak with you? And when we talked, I heard her terrible story of a double rape that she had been subjected to, which prompted devastating nightmares, screamings in the night, self-harm, various things. Or the woman struggling to process her brother's sudden suicide. Or the young couple overwhelmed by the death of a four-month-old uh, child, only to find themselves next thing in a police cell, wrongly, definitely, utterly wrongly accused of physical abuse and calling, causing the child's demise. I remember the midnight mass here, uh, when I could see this couple at the back, on bail, living with this awful thing, the loss of a little precious child, and then having to face the prospect of prosecution too. And so it goes on, you know. For such people, the crippling sense of shock and disorientation, talk about an earthquake. It may be even more paralyzing than the actual event itself. <clears throat> Now, by comparison, uh, our life may be on a relatively even keel most of the time. And yet the very nature of being alive in this world involves experiencing shock on a larger or a smaller scale. It's just part of being a conscious being, uh, negotiating our way through changing circumstances that cannot be predicted or necessarily controlled. Our lovely friend Sophie Savage who I've talked to you about before, uh, has just released a fabulous book on this very subject. Actually, I have a copy here which you're very welcome to take a look at, which is called Life Shocks. And uh, it's actually called Life Shocks and How to Love Them. 
And uh, it speaks to all those unwanted and unexpected moments of our lives, many of which we don't like and some of which we may do, because shocks can be positive too, you know. We've had some really good shocks at times, I hope, in our lives. But either way, they surprise us, they blindside us, they shock us, they command our attention. And as Sophie writes in the book, these are not necessarily once-in-a-while events, but often a dozen-a-day encounters with stuff that we can't control, predict, or plan. Some bounce off us, some scratch the surface of our lives, others strike deep into our being. These moments are collision points between life as we see it and want it to be and life as it actually is. You've heard me speak about Sophie before. She's the woman, the author of a book called The Cancer Whisperer. And this book arose from being told, as she was, that she had stage four cancer and likely had a couple of months to live. Now that's a shock. For Sophie, for her husband, for their six-year-old daughter, who I had the pleasure of baptizing, and for a multitude of loved ones in their lives. Nearly four years on from that diagnosis, uh, with the book, The Cancer Whisperer, translated into 27 languages, winning multiple awards, uh, Sophie's now come up with this new book about life shocks. Uh, life shocks that are on a much broader canvas than a diagnosis of a terminal disease. I really do recommend the book. In my review of it, I described it as a spiritual classic, which I think it is. The crunch thing in life isn't what happens to us, awful as that may be, or happy as it may be, but how we process it, how we react to it, what we take from it. In her book, Sophie asks, what if these moments, these life shocks, are a personalized navigation system, helping us chart our way to more authentic, creative, and loving lives? What if there's a pattern to them that may accelerate our development if we could only see? And what if life really is trying to tell us something about our own essence and purpose? As I come to the end of my sixth decade, I really don't like saying that, I hardly ever have said it in my life, actually, and hope I won't again. Uh, as I come to the end of my sixth decade, oh, I just did it. Um, <laughs> seventh, is it? No, the end of this. Oh, heck. Look, I'm getting older all the time. Am I really? I don't like you people. <laughs> I think I realize that it's essential at some point in our lives to accept that life is really about love and loss and the complexities that give meaning to our loves and our losses. It seems the human heart is in a constant struggle to negotiate this rugged landscape of love and loss. I've always liked the phrase, in recovery. You know that phrase, in recovery? I've always liked that. A man this week told me he'd been in recovery as an alcoholic for 22 years. I've got a friend who has now passed 28 years in recovery. That's very impressive, you know. I know a number of people who've been in recovery from alcoholism and other addictions for decades. And if you know, have any clue at all what that means, what struggles, what emotional skirmishes and setbacks 
and roller coasters it includes, then it really is very impressive. But you know, most of us are in recovery, actually. Most of us are in recovery of some sort. I like the phrase, firstly, because it, it highlights, it points to the vulnerability and the brokenness of the human condition. We're all flawed or damaged. Uh, we're all damaged creatures needing to recover. But secondly, in recovery, I think also affirms that there's hope and redemption in life and that there is a positive way forward from and through even the most testing of circumstances and experiences. At one point after a period of remission, a scan showed that Sophie had 27, I mean 27, new tumours in her brain. Amazingly, and it's quite a story in itself, they were able to be zapped and her life continues. But it hasn't gone away, the cancer, and she's realistic. She says that it may get her some time, but she refuses, meanwhile, to be defined by that, to be defined by challenging circumstances. Um, her consultant says that Sophie is rewriting the narrative of cancer by rejecting the whole language and mindset of battling with uh, this disease and uh, which she sees as, as toxic, especially to the soul and probably to the body as well. She says that she's living, she's living with cancer. You know the time I've told before when she had her first radiation treatment and she's sitting in the waiting room afterwards and the nurse came to her and said, uh, Mrs. Savage, this is your next appointment for radiation therapy. And she said, oh, right, I'll, I'll see if I'm free, dear. <laughs> so... <laughs> And they said, no, no, this, this is your next appointment, Mrs. Savage. You know, she said, yes, I know, but I'm alive, you see. I have a life, and I might be doing something, so I'll see how I'm fixed. So that even cancer, she says, becomes a means of her growth and development as a person. You remember my story uh, last year of speaking with Barry, Sabin's dad, who was about to travel to Switzerland to end his life with peace and dignity after a lifetime of suffering and pain. In a poignant conversation, he asked me, what is the opposite to life? And I replied with a suspicious grin that I sensed that might be a trick question. Uh, <laughs> no tricks, no tricks, Dave, he said. There is no opposite to life. Life goes on in some form, always. Now, you can take that comment in a lot of ways. I have never actually explored the idea of reincarnation enough to really know whether I believe in it or not. But I do believe, actually, through my Christian uh, background and roots, I do believe in the principle of resurrection, that death is never the end. And I don't see this idea as fanciful or airy-furry or Sunday schoolish. You know, resurrection is actually written in some way into the fabric of creation. There's something greater than death the whole world seems to be telling us. Philip Larkin, not known for his religious belief, and quite, quite the opposite really, um, nevertheless recognises what I see in that poem as a religious truth, whether he likes to see it that way or not. 
um, in the cycle of life that is embodied in trees. His poem says, the trees are coming into leaf. The trees, look at it all around. The trees are coming into leaf. Like something almost being said. They're coming into bloom, like almost something being said. What are they saying, do you think? What would the leaves say to us if we could actually hear them? The trees are coming into leaf, like something almost being said. The recent buds relax and spread. Their greenness is a kind of grief. Is it that they are born again and we grow old? No, they die too. Their yearly trick of looking new is written down in rings of grain. Yet still the unresting castles thresh in full-grown thickness every May. Last year is dead, they seem to say. Last year's dead. Begin afresh, afresh, afresh. This is a poem about trees, but much more than that. It's about our lives, <clears throat> about the cycle of existence. I don't think he'd use the term resurrection. In fact, I know he wouldn't. But I see Larkin's poem as a statement of resurrection. It's about how the trees, how creation practices resurrection. Or as Barry put it to me, there is no opposite to life. Life goes on, albeit in a different form. Don't get too attached to the good things, Barry told me. Don't get too attached to the good things. Don't get overly upset by the challenging bits. Life isn't really about the circumstances, good or bad, we find ourselves in. It's about turning up. It's about being present. It's about who we are on the inside, who we become by how we inhabit the stuff that life dishes up. Wise words. Speaking about his own demise and the effect it would have on his friends, Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. So technically, or at least in the, uh, definitely in the poetic sense, the, the seed falls into the ground and dies. Um, but if it dies, Jesus says, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's hyperbole, you know. Don't get all kind of pious and stupid about it. He's not saying we should hate life. I don't hate life. That's what he's saying. I don't believe him. I love life. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying don't hang on to everything for dear life. Those who hang on to it end up losing it, in essence, if not literally. And those who hate, those who let go of their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It will become something else, something fresh. Like Philip Larkin, Jesus, and I bet Philip Larkin never thought I'd say those words together. <laughs> like Philip Larkin, Jesus took a natural observation of nature, a grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying, to say something important about the whole of life, which is that it's no use looking back or grasping hold of things that are passing we need to let things die, not in an act of resignation, oh well, there you go, but in a lively hope and a commitment to resurrection, to practicing resurrection, that out of death new things, new growth may indeed emerge. Science recognizes a similar principle in the process of evolution. That's what it is. New and more evolved forms of life can emerge only when existing forms of life yield to a greater process, to a greater wholeness in creation. The universe has got 
evolution written into its DNA. In practice, this isn't, however, an easy thing. It's not painless, far from it. As Larkin says, the recent buds relax and spread. Their greenness is a kind of grief. There's always grief, even when the leaves are bright green. There is still a loss. There's always sorrow and bereavement to the cycle of life. The very greenness of life carries with it a grief at what has passed. We don't want to let go of things. That's just how we are. But it's life. Barry told me we just need to throw ourselves into the whole thing. And he said, I now want to throw myself into life by letting go of this body. It served me well despite its limitations, but now the pain is too much. But here's the thing, he said, I feel like a larva struggling to become a butterfly. I love the words of Steve Jobs, uttered to a, I see all these people I'm quoting today, these cultural icons. Steve Jobs uttered to a bunch of students just months before he himself died. He said, your time here is limited. I heard Sophie Savage give a speech on her birthday in which she said, friends, we are all terminal. Your time here is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, Steve Jobs says, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. So dear friends, we must toast the past for all it's worth. We must also, perhaps tentatively and tearfully, toast the future for all it can be, for all that we, we can be. Amen.